Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I ask that you bear with me this morning in my congested voice. Hope it's not too much of a distraction. Uh, working through, I'm sure, like many of you, through the common cold. And uh, don't be offended when I don't shake your hand after the service. But uh, we are up to Mark 14, this book that we have been immersed in for over a year now. And uh, you might flip ahead and see there's only 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. So you might think, man, we are finally getting close. And, and like, you're, you're kind of right, but, but not so fast. Uh, you'll also notice chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the Gospel. It's 72 verses, and we're going to start it today and get the first chunk out of the way. But um, this morning, we're going to talk about sacrifice. Sacrifice. What do you need to see in someone's life for this thought to cross your mind? And that person really sacrificed something. And I think in order to actually make that assertion, what you have to do is consciously, subconsciously is determine the worth of what they're sacrificing for. Uh, what is something is worth is always connected to the level of a sacrifice. So I want to read a portion of a letter. Uh, this letter was written in 1811 by a young man named Adoniram Judson. I've spoken about him before. He was one of the first cross-cultural missionaries sent out from the United States. He was going to the country of Burma, which is located near India, where the gospel had not been. And he wanted this woman named Anne to join her. He's known Anne for one month. And so he wrote this letter to Anne's father who he had never met, to ask permission to marry his daughter. Listen to what he writes. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Love, Adoniram. <laughs> my conversation with my future father-in-law went a little differently. <laughs> I, I'm, yours probably as well, although there are some parallels. Rochelle's family, many of you know, we're all from Wisconsin. We have some visiting with us this weekend. Uh, and I had only met him a couple times before I asked him to consent to her going to the heathen lands of New Jersey. <laughs> not, not Burma, but the, probably some parallels in some ways. But how would you define sacrifice? And, and, and then narrowly, how would you define sacrifice for God? When was the last time you did something costly for the sake of Christ? And so I think the question that needs to be answered first is, how do you measure the worth of Jesus? 
How do you measure the worth of Jesus in your life? And in this morning's passage, we're going to see various ways that people measure and calculate Jesus' worth. And so that's our setup for this passage. We're going to cover the first 11 verses this morning, but we'll start with just the first two, chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So, first uh, response to Jesus' worth, it's simple, he's of no worth. First response somebody might have that Jesus is of no worth. Mark um, locates where we are in the midst of this kind of first Holy Week. It was two days before Passover, uh, which fell on a Friday, and so now it's Wednesday of that first Holy Week. Uh, If you know and remember, a lot happened on Tuesday. Our last probably 10 to 12 sermons were all on Tuesday in these conversations that were happening. Um, And then this is the only passage in Mark's gospel that covers Wednesday. And as a reminder, Passover was the most important day on the Jewish calendar. It was estimated that the population of Jerusalem swelled from about 100,000 to a million each year during the Passover because of Jews from around the empire who were making the pilgrimage. And it was a time of thanksgiving and remembrance for God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. If you know that story in the book of Exodus with Moses and the plagues and uh, taking the people out of Egypt, Moses told the families in Israel... In the tenth plague, that if they sacrificed a lamb and shed its blood on their doorposts, then the Lord would pass over their homes and they would be spared from the plague. And after this display of God's power, Pharaoh agreed to to release all the men, women, and children of Israel, and they were free. Um, And so Moses instates the Passover. It's this annual reminder of God's grace. And the tragic irony is that in this season of supposed thanksgiving and gratitude to God for his deliverance, the leading Jews of the day, the chief priests and the scribes, are seething with anger directed towards the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And they had given their best shot at publicly discrediting him, of exposing his beliefs and turning the crowds against him. That's what we saw all throughout uh, chapters 11 and 12, that they wanted to discredit him. They wanted in in the court of public opinion to make him look like an idiot, and they failed. And not only did they not turn the crowds against him, but these public debates backfired back onto them, and the crowds now seemed even more enamored with Jesus. But what they do know amongst themselves is this guy has to go. Like they are in panic mode a little bit now. And they couldn't just let this go on because now this is turning into a movement. And so they say amongst themselves they have to now turn to deceit. They have to arrest him privately and then kill him. The only problem is that there's a small chance that they could actually do it privately because he's the biggest star in Jerusalem right now. There would be a mob scene if they actually just went and privately arrested him and people found out. And so they said, okay, the Passover, let's let it go by. Let's let the people go home and then we'll snag them. That's their plan, or so they thought. So what's the worth of Jesus to them? None. He's of no worth at all, no value. They are better off without him. Surely this is still widespread throughout the world today. The majority of people would say they hear the name Jesus, but he holds no value. 
They might not be hostile about it like these chief priests were, but they might just say, um, listen, um, he holds no relevance to my life. I'm not trying to be mean about it or jerk about it. The, the man lived 2,000 years ago. I could never hear the name Jesus again, and I couldn't care less. In places like America where Jesus is, I'd say, much more prominent, more well-known, people might not say that, but their lives expose them to be functional atheists. Where if Jesus was stripped from them tomorrow, nothing would really change the way they go about living their lives. Where they say they believe, but nothing would look different if he was gone. Functionally, no worth. Because there was never a level of sacrifice to begin with. So Maybe you've heard this before, but um, what if I asked you a question? That if today, Jesus was erased from your life, how would tomorrow look different than yesterday? If Jesus was completely removed from your life, how would tomorrow look different than yesterday? What would look different about your worldview? What would be different about your joy in life and where it comes from? Where, what about your sense of peace and, and purpose when you wake up in the morning? What would be different about the way you spend your time tomorrow? What would be different about the way you spend your money? If the answer is probably nothing, that's a problem. It's a red flag at best, and at worst, it's saying functionally, Jesus was never of any worth. So that's number one. Let's keep going. Verses three through five. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. We're going to talk about the woman in a moment, but second, the people who reacted to the woman. Jesus is of nominal worth. Some. Some worth. Nominal worth. So, so Mark talks about the chief priests, and then he shifts gears to another story. But we'll see in a little bit, these verses are all very intentionally ordered in this way. And now he has us in the village of Bethany. This village is a small town just outside the city of Jerusalem. It would serve as Jesus' home base during the Passover. And, and Mark kind of sets the scene for us. Jesus is reclining at a table in the home of a man named Simon. Now today, if you have somebody over your home to eat, like that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, but you would have all different kinds of people maybe uh, eat. You wouldn't be as discriminative. Like, you can eat, you can't eat. Um, back in the Jewish day, you were very particular about who ate at your house. And you only had people over your home to eat that you considered a social equal. And at these meals, men would recline at a small table. This is kind of weird to picture because it's so different from now. They'd recline with their feet behind them up against some uh, cushions with a table that's low to the ground. Why anybody thought that was ever a good idea? Like, I, like maybe I'm just more inflexible than the average person, but that feels like a horrible position to eat in or have a conversation. I'm just like, thank goodness somebody like started building chairs at some point in the last 2,000 years. Um, but they're in this scene, reclining at the table, and this woman, who we'll talk more about in a bit, approaches Jesus with an expensive jar of ointment and perfume and pours the entire thing on Jesus' head. And those around the table, or um, others in the room, begin saying to themselves, notice that, 
not necessarily out loud at first, but kind of elbowing one another to themselves, what is she doing? And they weren't just surprised. They weren't like, this is just an interesting point. Like, they were angry. Mark says they spoke indignantly, like, what a waste. And they scolded her. Wasn't everyone's response, but Mark says some. I imagine this included, if not all the disciples, at least a few. But I think it's safe to assume that there was people at this table that actually liked Jesus, that followed him, that respected him. But there's a limit, okay? Like, if, there was, if it was a drop of this expensive perfume, I get it. He's a good teacher, he's our leader, I get it. If it was a whole cheap bottle, okay, we could talk about that. But an entire expensive bottle, like, that was too far, too much. And with this response, it exposes their perceived value of Jesus. Yeah, he's of value, but some. He's of nominal worth, but there's a point where it's too much. And maybe his eyes were just set on the, their eyes were actually set on the physical cost of this perfume because they knew exactly how much it was worth, and it made them uncomfortable. Like, this was over the top. This is just not practical. And and as as I'm reading this, I, I couldn't help but laugh. Like, I can kind of see myself fitting into this camp I get nervous when things get really expensive. All right, so if I go out to eat at a nice restaurant, I don't need to, like, stay in the appetizer part of the menu, but I'm not going to, like, the the entrees on the last page. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me that middle-of-the-road chicken dish. All right, and and I'm not judging anyone who will pay $50 for a steak. All right, don't get weird at me at Hula Hands next week if you see me, like all the pastors here. All right, like um, it's fine if you're okay with that. I just, I get very nervous when it gets to that range. So Valentine's Day this past week, um, I'm sure many of you guys went out to eat, right, and celebrate that. Uh, We did not, but uh, uh, maybe some of you did. And I, I, my worst memory on Valentine's Day in the history of my life happened in going out to eat. Sophomore in college, I just began hanging out with this girl. We're not even really dating, but my housemate had a girlfriend, longtime girlfriend, and they were going out for Valentine's Day, on Valentine's Day. And they had a reservation at a restaurant that I'd never heard of. It had the word Tuscany in it. That should have been a red flag for me. <laughs> they could not go because his girlfriend played soccer and found out they had practice at night. So um, they say, Aaron, do you want the reservation? It's Valentine's Day. Bring this girl you just started seeing. And like a moron, (laughs) I go, okay, take the reservation. And I was so naive, I did not have this concept of what restaurants do on Valentine's Day. Prefixed menus. All right, the biggest scam that is out there. And so we sit down, it's got Tuscany on it, there's white cloth. I walk in, I'm like, oh no. And you walk in, and they, they don't give you the menu. They give you the one-page Valentine's Day prefixed menu. No prices on it. Start sweating. It's going in blind. So now the whole meal, I'm nervous. What, what's going on? Waitress comes in after, do you want dessert? My, like, before I could go, no, because nobody has dessert at these restaurants. She goes, I would love some. I'm like, are you serious? Like, come on! Okay, so we get dessert, and the bill comes, and they're smart. They always put it face down, you know, and so have you done it? You do the slow-mo turn, where I'm like kind of looking how 
This thing was $140 for two of us. Before tip, had to use the emergency credit card my mom gave me for college. Did you ever have one of those? You know what the key word in that is? Emergency. Like if you're dying, still don't use it. Try and figure it out. But then with like your last gasping breath, like swipe it on your way down. Pull that out. Fun phone call home the next day. It didn't work out with this girl. All that to say, that took way too long to say, I kind of get the response of those at the table that got really heated. Like, what is she doing? 300 denarii. Like, don't waste it like that. That could have been used for so much good. And do you notice the kind of religious high horse statement there? It could have been used to give to the poor. Because they thought Jesus would agree with this. Jesus speaks to us about giving to the poor often. He's going to be angry at this woman too. So they think they're sliding to Jesus' side to say, how dare this woman come in and do that? But this is the mark of seeing Jesus as someone who's of nominal worth. Some. But there's a line where it's too much. And and I'd say that today, it is probably the most common response, not only outside our churches, but in them. Everything in moderation, including our devotion to Jesus. There's a line where it's too much, it's too radical. And we might make us uncomfortable when we see this devotion in others, like, whoa, slow your roll there, but I'm a Christian, but like a normal one, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not one of those outspoken ones. I don't verbally share my faith, I just let my actions do the talking. I don't want to rock the boat or ruin a relationship by talking about Jesus. I'll just live out my faith and let that be my witness, and then maybe someday, if there's an opportunity down the road, I'll share about Jesus. I I can't tell you how many times I've convinced myself, that's good. We should do that. You know what the problem is? There's never a time frame where you think, okay, now's a good time. I think I should bring up Jesus. Like, what's, what's the time frame? Six months? Six years? living next to somebody for six decades, I oftentimes conveniently never get around to the verbal part. I'm a nominal Christian, I, I'm, but I'm a normal one. I would miss him if he was gone, but you know, if I'm honest, I could probably make it work if I had to. Everything in moderation. Let's keep going. Mark 14, 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Third, and most notably, sacrificial worth. You know, it's interesting because Mark never gives us the name of the woman who Jesus will elevate to be the one who should be emulated in this story. And I think that it's intentional that he does not give us her name. But you know what? We do know her name. In John's parallel account in John chapter 13, there's the same story, and this was Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. 
a family that never actually gets mentioned in the Mark's account. But we know from John's gospel, again, that outside the 12 apostles, these three siblings were as close to Jesus as anyone. He often stayed at their home. He taught and discipled them closely. And oh, by the way, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and so the way my mind works, there's a lot we can now talk about knowing that this is Mary. But I want to go along with Mark's account because Mark, I think, is intentional in not giving us her name. I think that's going to become a point in and of itself that we will see later. But she is clearly the central point of the whole passage. The only example of one who sees Jesus of sacrificial worth. The only one who understood his true value and responded accordingly. And Jesus is going to affirm her in two ways. Two ways Jesus affirms her sacrificial worth. One, she alone recognizes his value. He's quick to say, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. And she did not hold back. So at these uh, social dinners in Jewish homes in the first century, women were rarely, if ever, present. They were expected to stay away from the table because it was the men who had the conversations, the men who were educated, the men who reclined and talked and debated. And, and you know what I love about this unnamed woman? She doesn't care. Like when she sees Jesus, she's willing to go against any cultural norms to get to him. She had to know this was going to make some of the men angry. And she does it anyway. Not to provoke their anger, but because when Jesus is so worthy and valuable to you, you don't care what consequences are going to come your way. Hear me, it is a beautiful and liberating thing when your love for Jesus gets to a place where you stop caring what others think about you. That's a hard place to get to, but it is beautiful and it is liberating. And this flask of ointment was worth 300 denarii. That was um, worth a full year's wages for the common laborer. A full year's salary in this jar, and she pours it out in full. And when she broke the flask, it was no longer usable. There was no more salvaging it. It was all coming out. That is a small detail, which is a big deal. The moment it broke, there was no turning back. It wasn't just a drop, okay, let's seal it back up. It was all or nothing. And this is the word picture we have for someone who holds nothing back in their worship and devotion of Jesus Christ. Nominal Christianity, what we just talked about, nowhere is that presented in the Bible as something that is good. Nowhere is it promoted to be kind of in, but make sure you hold some back. It's all or nothing. It's complete devotion or no devotion, because a faith in moderation over time turns out to be no faith at all. This is why Paul, after 11 masterful theological chapters in the book of Romans, starts his kind of applicational section in chapter 12, verse 1, like this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know what he says there? Break the flask. Don't just drop, put a drop out and then seal it back out. Break the flask. Do not let your worship come a drop at a time. Don't hold back. Give it all you got, all of you. Jesus just came out of teaching that to his disciples. God wants all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all of it. Break the flask. You know what I love? 
You know why I love going through books of the Bible verse by verse? Uh, There's a lot of reasons, but this example of Jesus praising a woman for her sacrificial generosity, if you've been here, that should ring a bell. From recent history, just a few weeks ago, we saw a scene of Jesus standing in the temple. Do you remember? Watching all the rich people pour their money into the basins, wanting to get everybody so impressed with how generous they are. And then a poor widow comes in, puts in two small copper coins that make a penny, and Jesus pops up to that and says, did you see her? She has put in more than all the rest. So first, he spotlights a gift that is considered poor. And now he spotlights a gift that is considered rich, both by women, and in doing so, he reaffirms that generosity is an act of the heart. Two copper coins, you know what they equaled? One sixty-fourth of one denarii. The alabaster ointment equaled 300 denarii. And Jesus affirms both. You know why? Because generosity is never about the amount of money. It's always about the amount of sacrifice. And Jesus says about this woman, she has done what she could. Church, when it comes to generosity, let it be true of us that we all do what we can. And that we would search our hearts. And when it comes to our time, and it comes to our treasure, and it comes to our talent, ask ourselves, are we doing what we can to multiply these resources for the spread of God's kingdom? So first, he... she alone recognizes his value. Second, this woman alone recognizes Jesus' death. Jesus affirms that this act of pouring oil on his head is anointing his body beforehand for burial. He won't always be here. He's going to die. And you might think, man, how did this woman know that? It's crazy how that she knew that. And you know why? Jesus told everybody. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen it. He says, I will be handed over to the chief priests and be killed and buried and three days later rise again. And the disciples were hearing that and being like, no, I'm not really getting it. They never pieced it together that he was going to die because it was so far off their radar that he was going to be taken from them. He thought, they thought, this guy's the Messiah. This guy's coming to take rule. He's not going anywhere. And his death will hit them like a ton of bricks. But this unnamed woman, she heard Jesus at some point, and she gets it. And she's the only one in Mark's gospel that pieces it together and responds accordingly, where she sees the value of his death. And she clings to his words because he is the Messiah, and she will trust him. And she probably didn't totally understand, but she trusted him. She had faith. The point is, even despite some of her questions, she believed. And so she anoints him with oil, which was an ancient practice in the burial of the dead. And this is why Jesus rebukes his disciples who said she should have sold the flask and given it to the poor. And yes, surely Jesus does think we should take care of the least of these. He talks about that often. He he teaches about it often. Nobody talked about it more than he did, about caring for the least of these. But by saying this, he's revealing his identity. He says, guys, the poor will always be here, but not me. I'm on a pathway to die on the cross, and in doing so, to be the true and better sacrificial Passover lamb that will deliver God's people from the slavery of sin. 
if anyone else said this, yeah, pour the oil on me, do not sell it and give to the poor. It would be self-centered, it would be narcissistic, but not Jesus. Not the God-man who took on human flesh in order to redeem a fallen humanity. You remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, thinking about this story? He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This unnamed woman understood more than even Jesus' disciples did that she was using this on a poor man who became so by his poverty that you might become rich. He is of sacrificial worth. All right, let's finish with the final verses. Verses 10 to 12. Excuse me, 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Finally, fourth response to Jesus. He is of replacement worth. I want to cover this quickly, but Mark deploys a literary technique here that is unique to him, and he uses it a few times throughout his gospel. It's called intercalation. We've talked about it before. I prefer the word sandwich technique. Just easier. And that he starts with a story, then he interrupts to tell another story, and then he ends with the conclusion to the first story. So the top piece of bread is the chief priests, panicked about what should they do with Jesus. And they think, okay, we have to find a way to privately arrest him and kill him, and that's going to be tough because there's all these crowds around and it's Passover. And he stops, and he comes to the bottom piece of bread, Judas, one of the very close 12 apostles. He will approach the chief priests, and how conveniently offer his own services for his betrayal. And then in the middle, the meat of the story, or the veggies if you're a vegetarian, the main point of the story is the utter faithfulness and sacrifice of the woman. You see how brilliant this is writing by Mark? Top of the sandwich, most important, titled chief priests in the land. Bottom of the sandwich, Judas, a named, prominent apostle of Jesus. And in the middle, the most important of them all, the one who Jesus, who said, will be celebrated wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, it's an unnamed, unassuming, faithful woman. And for Judas, this scene that he witnessed at Simon's house proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, we're going to talk more about him as chapter 14 rolls along, but if you really read the Gospels, there's a lot we don't know about Judas. Like, was he always this skeptical of Jesus? Was he always this wary of him? Was this always the plan? Or was he actually genuinely following for a while there during those three years? Was this a dramatic turn of heart made in Holy Week, or was this simmering for a while? We don't know. But either way, he saw the replacement value of Jesus. You know, he didn't just see what was going on and go, you know what, I'm out. All right, I'm out. Like, I don't know what's going on there, but I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. He didn't just walk away. He either thought that Jesus was now so dangerous that he had to play a role in destroying him, or... He was lured by the replacement value. 
could make a few bucks here. You know, it's being close to Jesus could have its advantages. And sure enough, the chief priests throw out the replacement value. Here's 30 pieces of silver. It's worth roughly a few thousand dollars in our day today. But he exposes an approach to Jesus, an approach to Jesus that I think is far more common than you might think at first glance. You might not say that there's people who want to kill Jesus, so to speak, but how often do we see Jesus as somebody we could use to get something else? You know, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to get the spouse I've been looking for. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to get that job I've been applying for. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to get that healthy recovery that I'm looking for. I think it's more common than we think to see Jesus as someone to use to get value in something else. And even for well-meaning Christians who struggle with temptations, the temptation to betray Jesus on any level is always before us, and we will never get enough value in return for doing so. You know, another apostle named Peter We'll find this out later in chapter 14, a couple days from now. The value of betraying Jesus to gain recognition or acceptance from others. To betray Jesus just to get a little bit more money. To betray Jesus to get that temporary sexual thrill that will never pay off. You will always come up short. And so Mark, in 11 verses, puts forward four values that people put on Jesus that I think can probably speak for every person in the world. He's either of no worth, some nominal worth, replacement worth, or the only right worth, sacrificial. How worthy is Jesus to you? How does your level of sacrifice for him get exposed in your life? Let us not be fooled into thinking that there's this kind of bare minimum line that you just have to get over to be good enough. Jesus wants all of you, not to make you miserable, not to keep you from good things, but to truly free you from the fear and anxiety and chains of this world. And his worth will only be sacrificial when we see him for who he really is, God in the flesh. And when you see him for what he's really done, dying on a cross so that you may have life, a heart who sees that, really sees it, can't help but turn their lives over to him. Well, I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger in the introduction. You might be wondering how the, in the world did Adoniram Judson's potential father-in-law receive this letter? What about Anne in this whole thing? And so the father, understandably, got this letter went to Anne and said, this is your call. If you want me to say no, I'll say no. But I will not stop you if this is what you choose. Anne said yes. Shortly after the wedding, they set sail for Burma. And before she left, Anne wrote a letter of her own. Listen to this portion of Anne's letter. Quote, I feel willing and expect if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, 
I have, come about, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. You know, Anne would die in Burma, and she would die from an illness. She was able to return to the States once briefly, where she wrote the book To the Golden Shore. But she was in Burma for 12 years, and in those 12 years, you know how many people came to Christ? 18. But currently in Burma, there are 2.5 million faithful Christians today using the same Bible translation that Adoniram and Anne worked on. Talk about a legacy of sacrificial worth. The call is to give your all to Jesus, whatever your all is. Devotion to Christ and giving what we can is not a matter of outward amounts, but inward devotion and sacrifice. And Jesus knows the heart, and he became poor so that those who put their faith in him might become rich. So hold nothing back. It really is a beautiful thing. Let's pray.